0: Hello, I'm Peter Van Duzen, and this is the Primetime Politics Podcast. On primetime politics tonight, Canada's vaccine experts provide new guidance on the one-dose Johnson & Johnson vaccine, saying it might be better to wait for a different vaccine if you can. As Alberta gains the dubious distinction as one of North America's COVID hotspots, we'll speak with an expert on how Alberta got so bad and what should be done to regain control of the wave. And the Conservatives call for the firing of the Prime Minister's Chief of Staff as opposition parties ramp up pressure on the government over its handling of the allegations of sexual misconduct against the former chief of the defense staff. And our Monday panel of parliamentary journalists weigh in on the top stories of the day. But we'll begin tonight with the latest on vaccines in Canada. The National Advisory Committee on Immunization today recommended the one-dose Johnson & Johnson vaccine only be administered to people 30 years of age and older. And those people, Nassi says may prefer to wait for either the Pfizer or Moderna vaccines. That advice contradicts the authorization from Health Canada that recommended use of the J&J vaccine for anyone over the age of 18. Nassi also suggested the Pfizer or Moderna vaccines are preferable for pregnant women. The committee cited recent concerns about blood clots for their reasoning. Johnson & Johnson has agreed to supply Canada with 38 million doses, but Health Canada is holding back the first 300,000 doses Canada has received over quality control concerns at a U.S. manufacturing plant.
1: They need to make an informed choice as to whether they would prefer to get vaccinated um, sooner with a Janssen or AstraZeneca vaccine or wait to receive the mRNA vaccine. And that would would um, be an individual choice. They know that their risk tolerance for an adverse event, um, and also know their personal situation, how um, how much they may be able to protect themselves using public health measures, um, and those are are all issues that would need to be taken into account when one decides whether to be vaccinated earlier with another vaccine.
0: Well, the province of Alberta has seen the third wave of the pandemic running wild. The province now has the highest rate in North America of infections per 100,000 people. It is double the rate of the province of Ontario, pressure mounting for tougher restrictions in the province to try and bring the spread under control and protect a strained health care system from collapse. Dr. Noel Gibney is the co-chair of the Edmonton Zone Medical Staff Association's Strategic COVID-19 Pandemic Committee, and he's with me now. Dr. Gibney, first of all, thanks for taking time to speak with me today. I do appreciate it. Thank you, Peter. Thank you for having me. How much trouble is Alberta in right now with what seems like uh, this unchecked spread of COVID? Uh, Alberta's in uh, a lot
2: of trouble. I mean, the the, the numbers in large measure speak for themselves with, as you mentioned earlier, twice the rate of Ontario and now the uh, COVID capital of Canada and United States.
0: Uh, to give it some perspective, as I, as I touched on, Alberta's seven-day average of, of cases per 100,000 people is now uh, roughly double the Ontario numbers. Alberta is now, as you said, tops in North America. How did it get so bad?
2: I think that's a really good and important question. I, I think there, there are two components. The first is that after the uh, second wave, the Alberta government started to open up too early. Uh, particularly with the arrival of the new B one one seven variant, which spreads more rapidly, this kind of spread slowly in the background, and then at a certain point in time reached a critical mass, which was in early April. It was clear to us, probably from the towards the end of February onwards, that we were going to get ourselves into significant trouble. And, and despite that, because I'm sure the, uh, the government had similar modeling, uh, they continued to open up at a rate that was premature, given the uh, arrival of the new variant and the numbers that we were seeing. So I think we opened up too early. The second problem is that even though we've recognized for quite a while now that we're in trouble, the government has simply not introduced uh, public health restrictions that are strict enough to get control of this new variant Um, Our numbers are such that we recognize that if we continue on on the current pathway with just the current levels of restrictions, by the last week of May, the healthcare system will be overwhelmed and Alberta Health Services will have to introduce the newly announced uh, critical care pandemic triage protocol, uh, which would be uh, uh, really an extraordinary
0: event and, and one that we really do need to avoid. So that could be a few weeks away and I was I was going to get to that and to be clear so people understand what we're talking about this triage protocol that you and your colleagues have worked on it. Uh, their life and death decisions right it comes down to who you think uh, is going to be in the best position to survive based on uh, the emergency treatments available and you have to make choices about who lives perhaps and who doesn't. That's that, that's correct and emergency uh, triage procedures they're typically
2: kept in uh, a, a locked drawer until the disaster occurs. This, this is unusual because, mm. generally speaking, they're used in a situation, say, for example, a major earthquake was to uh, hit Vancouver. Uh, at that point in time, it would be very clear nobody was expecting it, it happened, and people would have to implement that kind of, of protocol. What's so different about this is that we know that this is going to happen. We know how this can be averted. And yet, despite that, our government is continuing ahead on exactly the same trajectory towards what will be a disaster. And uh, that is an
0: extraordinarily, uh, uh, what would I say, irresponsible approach to take. We have seen the Premier announce uh, some new restrictions on hotspot cities in the province uh, last week, shutting down indoor fitness centers and and pools and some high schools uh, are gonna be closed for uh, left only to virtual learning. Uh, Is any of that gonna be enough to stop what's happening? No, not really. It, it, we simply have to introduce a, uh, a firm
2: lockdown somewhat similar to what was here in the first wave in Alberta last year. Uh, Alberta had a, a very strict response. It resulted in the first wave being managed very efficiently and, and without uh, any difficulties. And, and so I think we simply have to go back there. The real challenge that I think we're, we're dealing with at this stage is that... Um, the government, uh, its base simply are uh, rebelling against any form of restriction. And I think that the, the government's weak response to this is giving them encouragement. Yeah.
0: Well, I wanted to come uh, to that. I wanted to get to that. We, we saw a, a small, a very publicized, a small minority of Albertans uh, ignoring the rules this past weekend with hundreds of people, maybe a couple of thousand, attending a, a no more lockdowns rodeo on the weekend. Uh, police were there but they didn't try to stop it. And the, the Premier tweeted uh, that it's a slap in the face to everyone who is following the public health orders, but do you wonder why more is not being done on the enforcement side? And Do you wonder about the messaging coming from political leaders in Alberta?
2: I think the messaging is one of the major problems. On one hand, uh, you know, the Premier says this is a slap in the face, but unless he actually does something uh, forceful about it, there's no reason that individuals won't continue to behave this way. We saw uh, earlier this year at the Grace Life Church uh, west of Edmonton continue to operate maskless and with uh, large numbers of people attending for six months before enforcement was taken. And and there's very clearly a lot of mixed messaging coming mm-hmm. from the pre- All
0: right, uh, Dr. Gibney, uh, thanks for uh, taking time to speak with me about this today. And, uh, 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 all of us are watching in the country what's happening in Alberta, and we, we hope you turn a corner there soon. Uh, thanks for the time today. Thank you very much, Peter. Well, opposition MPs were hoping to continue their push today to call the Prime Minister's Chief of Staff before the Defence Committee to be questioned about the allegations of sexual misconduct against the former Chief of Defence Staff, uh, Jonathan Vance. But the Liberal Chair of the Committee abruptly cancelled the meeting at the last minute. And on Tuesday, MPs will be debating a Conservative motion calling for the House to call for the Prime Minister to fire Katie Telford for failing to notify him of the allegations of sexual harassment against uh, General Vance when they first surfaced from the former military ombudsman three years ago. So, lots to uh, follow up on now with uh, these latest developments. Three members of Parliament. Anita Vandenbelt is the Parliamentary Secretary to the Minister of Defence. Michael Barrett is the ethics critic for the official opposition Conservatives. And Randall Garrison is the defence critic for the NDP. Anita Vandenbelt, let me start with you. Um, The Defence Committee was scheduled to meet today to continue debating uh, whether to call Katie Telford as a witness. Why was the meeting cancelled at the last minute?
3: Uh, well, well. first of all, the Defense Committee was scheduled actually to talk about our mental health study. Um, and, and it was, in fact, the opposition on Friday that uh, pushed to suspend the proceedings. And this morning, when it became apparent that Mr. O'Toole said that he was going to put a motion in the House to have the very person that we were debating calling before committee uh, have a motion to have that person fired, uh, at that point, nothing productive could come from a meeting because they'd already presupposed the outcome of the testimony. And I'd like to be clear that the Defense Committee is meeting again on Friday. I think the chair made that very apparent today. Uh, will will this be on the agenda? Will Katie Telford's
0: appearance be on the I guess it depends what happens to the motion tomorrow, huh?
3: Uh, yeah, and, 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 I, and I think there's a little bit of crying wolf here because a few weeks ago, the opposition were screaming that we shut down the study when, in fact, all we did was put a timeline on the report. And we've had five more meetings on this okay. since we supposedly shut down the study. All right, Mr. Barrett, so what's,
0: what's your reaction to that, Mr. Barrett?
4: Well, it's clear this is part of a cover up. We have a uh, committee that's scheduled to meet. And because the uh, the the liberal members don't like what the opposition is going to talk about, um, they they canceled the meeting. It's it's very. Uh, clear the reason that opposition parties want to hear from Miss Telford. Um, the Prime Minister has said he didn't know about the allegations uh, against General Vance and we've heard that Miss um, Telford did know. We heard from uh, the Ombudsman that he informed the Minister, Minister Sajjan, directly uh, that these were allegations of sexual misconduct. So if, if Miss Telford, um, Telford knew and if the Prime Minister is to be believed that uh, he did not know then what we have a, a situation here where the Minister of Defence and the Prime Minister's Chief of Staff uh, orchestrated a cover-up and kept okay, the Prime to, Minister to, of Canada to, in the dark.
0: To Anita Vandenbeld's point, if you want her fired, what's the point of bringing her before committee?
4: Well, that uh, you know, we talk about presupposing outcomes here. Uh, Miss Vandenbeld is presupposing the outcome of a vote in the House of Commons. Um, let's hear her testimony, perhaps it would enlighten members of, of Parliament, um, you know when this uh, this opposition day motion comes for a vote,
0: Right, but you, you weren't there, i don 't think there was ever a scenario where you were going to get Katie Telford at the committee before tomorrow 's motion calling for her to be fired
4: well the the motion 's not going to come for a vote when we right. uh, immediately and and also uh, we don't get to, we don 't get to pick when these when these days are scheduled it 's not for the chair of co- the committee to cancel a meeting because she doesn 't like what the opposition is going to talk okay. about Mr. This Garrett- is.
0: Okay, we'll come back to Mr. Barrett. Mr. Garrison, let me hear from you on this, uh, about the cancellation of that meeting today. What, what do you think happened here?
5: Well, if Miss Telford wanted to appear, we'd have all been there with bells on this morning to hear her testimony. But instead, the uh, chair cancelled the meeting. And I think it's important but, to But she back. wasn't
0: scheduled to appear today, right? There was The debate was going to continue on whether you could call her as a witness.
5: Well, all you had to do was do a quick call around and say Katie Telford wants to appear and all of us would have agreed to that. So let's not play silly games about what's happening in committee. What the Liberals are doing is stalling because they don't want to hear what Ms. Telford has to say. But what's most important here is that if we don't get to the bottom of why there was no action taken against General Vance, then there's no confidence that any reforms going forward will actually be taken seriously by either the survivors of sexual misconduct or the perpetrators. And so we have to know why General Vance was left in office three years after a very serious allegation of sexual misconduct. The Minister of Defence says, I referred to the Prime Minister. The Prime Minister says, I didn't know. So somebody here uh, is not telling the truth, I think is the most simple thing you
0: can say. Uh, Ms. Vandenbeld, if there's there's nothing to see here, if there's nothing to hide, why not have Katie Telford appear at your committee uh, to tell everyone uh, what happened, what she knows? Uh, Why not have her uh, go there and uh, then she can set the record straight or give her evidence and then we can all move from there?
3: Well, well, I would take exception to what my parliamentary colleagues have been saying about what was known. Uh, It's been very clear from all of the testimony, no need for further testimony, especially Mr. Marquez, uh, uh, the clerk of the Privy Council, the minister several times have all made it very clear that the nature and specifics of the allegations were not known.
0: Right, right, except no. But to be be clear, uh, uh, Mr. Marquez, uh, the first time we heard that the prime minister's office might have known ahead Uh, of the Privy Council office was in Mr. Marquez's testimony saying that uh, Katie Telford was aware of it uh, prior uh, to Mr. Sajin telling the Privy Council to... I
3: I think we have to be very careful what the it is because there was, as Mr. Marquez said, very limited knowledge of what it was. They didn't know the nature. They didn't know what the allegation yes, was. There were did. no specifics. But sure. no. uh, in fact, in 2015, it was Arnold O'Toole who did have rumors about very specific allegations, at least two, maybe okay, three but allegations. Do, and they you, do, you, do you acknowledge
0: the testimony? Women. The testimony now puts Katie Telford in the loop.
3: I, I would say it's exact exact opposite because we actually know now from every single person that testified that the nature of the allegations was not known no and but even if she didn't know the name she she, she she
0: was made aware of an allegation and the prime minister says it was never brought to him so she was aware so, there so was something fair. involving general Vance and it was never brought up to the prime minister
3: and and I would also an exception I should say there was no action okay. because they didn't know what the allegation was the the, the the, Mr. Walburn never provided what, even okay, what was, the allegations so there, 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 but, so there was nothing to tell, there right. was nothing to know when you don't know what it is, you don't know who it is, this you is don't know the all right. nature
0: Mr. of Mr. it. Mr. Barrett, um, let me ask you this, uh, the House will debate a conservative motion, we've talked about it calling for uh, the firing of Katie Telford, it, it's not binding on the Prime Minister and I guess I'm wondering what would firing Katie Telford accomplish for the victims of sexual misconduct in the mi- military?
4: Well, first of all let's be very clear miss vandenbeld is being disingenuous in her comments the ombudsman said very clearly and he has reaffirmed this several times in media following his appearance at committee that he informed minister Sajin directly that the allegations were about sexual misconduct perpetrated by the uh, chief of the defense staff so that was that was crystal clear and he gave that information to the minister of national defense. So that's important that we okay. don't uh, that that we don't uh, selectively uh, listen to the testimony we heard from the former ombudsman minister Mr. Walberg. So, so uh,
0: firing Katie <laughs> Telford does what for the for the victims of sexual misconduct?
4: Well, what we have is a situation where the prime minister's chief of staff if the prime minister is to be believed that he didn't know and we know that Miss Telford did know. Then um, she covered up uh, allegations of sexual misconduct right. perpetrated by the chief of defense staff against people under his command. Mr. And so there needs to be there needs to be consequences. Oh. People need to they need to see that there's been some action taken. Mm-hmm. We have a prime minister who's done nothing. He sat on the last review that was done for six years, and now in response to this, they're they're pointing and saying, "Oh my gosh, look, uh, the conservatives heard a rumor Mr. in 2015 right. and had an investigation." Let me move to Mr. Garrison. We
0: given- Mr. Garrison, what what did, do you support the motion? to fire Katie
4: Telford? Uh, Well, the Prime
5: Minister himself pointed the finger at Katie Telford in his press conference. I just think it's unfortunate that the Conservatives took the bait. So no, we won't be supporting the motion to fire Ms. Telford because the one responsible here, and there's only two choices, is the Minister of Defence or the Prime Minister. The Minister of Defence says, I told the Prime Minister's office and he clearly knew it was sexual misconduct. So that's where we have the breakdown here in our knowledge. If he told him it was sexual misconduct, and then the Prime Minister wasn't informed, the only one who can tell us that is Katie Telford. And that's why we'd still like to see her appear at committee.
0: Okay, uh, there's about 30 seconds left what? here. Uh, so, so I mean, Katie Telford did appear before the uh, committee investigating the WE Charity uh, situation, Anita Vandenberg. Why not? Why can't she appear at this committee and answer the questions?
3: Well, well I'd just like to be clear that... No, I'm just asking that question. Why can't she show up and
0: give... Why can't you tell the committee? we're sorry? Well, that
3: that that is up to the committee. I think that uh, the fact is the that there everything we've heard in committee has been consistent. Minister Sajjan did say that he disagreed with parts of Mr. Walburn's testimony, and every other witness that we've had has held up the fact and has said again that there were no specifics right. known, and there's nothing new to we're, learn. We're, there's okay, nothing so we, new, because we, nobody we, knew any we, specifics at that time.
0: We're going to okay. okay stop. We're going to leave. We, we have we have to, we're to leave it at that. Or, uh, out of time for tonight. But thank you all for giving us your. Advice we we'll are continue to follow where this goes, and we'll follow the motion in the House as well tomorrow. Thank you all for your time, today. I appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you all. Thanks. Well, let's bring in our Monday panel of parliamentary journalists now. Susan Delacorte is a columnist for the Toronto Star. Joël Denis Belavance is the parliamentary bureau chief for La Presse. John Iveson is a columnist for the National Post and parliamentary bureau chief for Post Media. Good to see you all again. Uh, Susan, let's talk about the tactics we're seeing from the Liberals to uh, prevent Katie Telford from appearing at the Defence Committee. Uh, What questions does that raise for you?
6: Uh, It raises any lessons about whether they learned any lessons from the SNC-Lavalin scandal um which was i know a long time ago like everything before the pandemic feels like but i i think it it showed a real tendency of this government to just turtle and uh and turn on its own uh or but t- turn to protect its own and to be incredibly risk averse when these kind of things happen so uh you know, you've seen Ms. Telford did come out and testify during the We Charity saga last summer. Right. Um, I don't, it didn't look like she enjoyed that all that much. Uh, but it, the question isn't whether she enjoys this or not. I think this is um, this is the the liberals. This is acting the type. They do protect their own. And yeah. I'll just say to be to be you know right down the middle on this too. Conservatives, when they were in office as well, had a real aversion. To bringing staff members before committees, right. the job, the the buck is supposed to stop with the elected person, and uh, it it can verge into the the realm of bullying. So I I think that's been the pushback from the liberal side, but mm-hmm. I, I would say. From 10 paces back, it looks like they're being defensive.
0: I, I guess that Joelle Denis, the, on Tuesday, the House will debate a Conservative motion calling for Katie Telford to be fired by the Prime Minister. We have the Defence Committee uh, shut down today trying to get answers on, uh, you know, trying to get her to come and testify. Uh, I, I guess the bottom line for people watching, and some of this might be inside the beltway for them, is do they think the Prime Minister's Chief of Staff has something to say to, to enlighten Canadians about what happened here in this process? What do you think?
7: Well, most of it is known to us as reporters who've been following this. And uh, there were chatting, ch- some chats about whether uh, the um, defense minister did the right thing by not looking at the allegations that was brought forward by the former ombudsman. And what is the role of the chief of staff of the prime minister in this affair? To me, this is uh, a mystery. Uh, but uh, as uh, Susan uh, mentioned, the Liberals now have adopted a defense strategy, and it is that only ministers will testify in front of committees over the prime minister, if he's called upon, and no staffers. So that's the line of defense. Okay. And I don't, I, think, I don't think they want to repeat the We Charity affair where a lot of staffers were brought in front of the uh, committee, and it led to, uh, uh, if I may say, uh, a loss of support in the polls because you know they were seen as being uh, trying to hide facts.
0: All right, John, what do you think is going on here?
7: Well, I agree with uh, JD. It's a mystery
8: why Katie Telford's at the centre of this. There's no evidence that she knew anything in particular, whereas there is clear evidence that uh, Harjit Sajjan is in the middle of it. I mean, it, to me, it's his mess, and ministerial accountability demands that he's the one who should answer for it. I mean, there is, it's clearly part of the National Defence Act that he could have called his own investigation, a probe into this, uh, to the allegations that were brought to him, and... I was talking to somebody who's close to the military today, and they're saying this is a complete distraction. It's turmoil. Yeah. Every person senior person in uniform has got their heads down. They're, they're really just hoping it all passes. In the meantime, the, the Jonathan Vance's successor has also been removed pending an investigation. Yeah. The current uh, temporary chief of the defence staff and the defence deputy minister are all engaged in some kind of internal. Uh, body they're trying to set up to, to handle har- harassment charges, it's a mess. Yeah. And yet, w- Day by day, the world is getting more dangerous. It's a national security issue. I mean, he was put it as bluntly as that. He said, this is worse than the Somalia affair, when right. we entered a decade of darkness.
0: Okay, well, watch where this takes us. Uh, Susan, let's switch gears here. The National Advisory Committee on Immunization issued its guidance on the Johnson & Johnson vaccine today, essentially saying because of safety concerns, basically don't get it unless uh, you'll have to wait too long to get a better vaccine. And yet public health leaders are still saying get the first
6: vaccine available to you. Does all this make sense to you? Uh, that was a that was a moment uh almost as surprising as the swear word in question period today um, but, but yeah i i i I was listening and said, Did I just hear that because it it you know you 've heard it from everybody this whole idea that the government has been trying to tamp down on vaccine shopping they don 't want people out there picking and choosing, and then they said, Well, if you have to pick and choose." don 't choose that one you know i don 't know whether Johnson and Johnson can sue them for sort of <laughs> bad advertising well i mean there 's there um, 's three
0: hundred you know, thousand doses that canada 's still holding on to for quality control uh, concerns and but've i think it 's thirty eight million that johnson and johnson 's agreed to send to Canada. Uh, you start to wonder why now you know?
6: yeah I, I, Michelle Rempel was asking about this in in the yeah. Commons, and I thought she was asking quite sensible questions, is basically, what? And uh, I, I did think, speaking of defensiveness, that the health minister reacted with, well, you know, you are you are contributing to people Fear. being nervous about vaccines and vaccine hesitancy, which shows you how ridiculous the debate is in the Commons these days. But I, I think this is a big, this is a... A reasonable development that happened today, and I, I'll i be curious to see if they stick to it because I'm, I'm, it, it has the feel of an undi- unintended message to get out there to Canadians.
0: Denis, uh, I mean it's, uh, you Denis, know, it sounds a bit like deja vu to me, we, we had the same sort of thing over AstraZeneca, which was the basic message which was the same, we have concerns about that, you might want to wait for, for something else, uh, what do you think Canadians are thinking about all this?
7: Well, there was fear that people might lose confidence in the vaccines that we're buying when the Estradaevaeva uh, issue arose—the uh, thrombosis and, and blood clots. and now this is clearly not a very, very big vote of confidence on the part of the uh, health officials towards Johnson and Johnson. So why bother buying it then? Because we'll have enough anyway from Pfizer and Moderna. So you don't want to lose. You, you don't want to. You want to make sure that the population does not lose confidence in the vaccination because that's the way out of this crisis so uh, there needs to be a clear signal sent by uh, the Prime Minister himself that you know this vaccine should be uh, should be maybe discarded uh, all the way because this is going to contribute to the lack of confidence towards that vaccine.
0: John let me hear your thoughts on this.
7: Well there's a clear disconnect between this
8: uh, vaccine advisory committee and Health Canada. They're not sending out the same message on this as as they weren't on uh, on the AstraZeneca one. And the public is listening. I mean, it it gets confused. It doesn't understand, does the advisory committee report to Health Canada? How can they be saying different things? But the message gets through because I I went to uh, to get the AstraZeneca uh, vaccine and I just turned up and they said, does anybody want AstraZeneca? And nobody wanted to go near this thing. Uh, and I walked straight to the front of the queue and I was through in, in 30 yeah. minutes because... And, and full people, disclosure,
0: I've, I've had the AstraZeneca. I've already been vaccinated with the AstraZeneca. But uh, a lot of people wonder, okay, if what should I do next? What about shot number two? Do I still get it or yeah. is, do I, can I mix and match? That's maybe a debate for another day. But uh, Susan, we only have a little bit of time left. So quick, quick answers from everybody here. Let's talk a little bit about what's happened to... Lisa Raitt pushed out of the Riding Association in Milton, where she used to be the MP in this battle between the new candidate, Nadim Akbar, who wanted to bring in an Alberta-based organizer who had worked for Erin O'Toole and pay him 6000 bucks to manage the local riding campaign, even before it started. So he stacked the Riding Association election with his own people, and Lisa Raitt and every other director up for re-election was, uh, was booted out. Big problem for Erin O'Toole, or not so much?
6: Uh, yeah, more of the same. I'm from Milton, so I've been uh, saying to my colleagues, it's a tough town. <laughs> they, uh, they they don't uh, they don't treat their people who lose elections well obviously uh so uh yeah i i regret that it happened to lisa Raitt. lisa Raitt as well uh viewed around here and uh and i think around even milton too i think it's a sign that uh things are not all okay in conservative yeah. land uh, jd what's your thought
7: well it's a big loss normally for for O'Toole, but for the conservative party as 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 a whole because Lisa Raitt is a voice of, uh, you know, of reasonableness, of moderation. And she's a woman and she was a strong woman in the cabinet uh, uh, when Stephen O'Brien was prime minister. So that's a big loss from Stuart Gould per se and the Conservative Party because okay. she was seen as a, you know, moderate voice that was well respected uh, across the country.
0: Will give the last 30 seconds to uh, the Laird of Chelsea? Mr. Iverson, go ahead. <laughs>
8: <laughs> well, I think that... Um, <laughs> You know, instant members is not a, a new phenomenon for the Conservative Party. Uh, it's not a huge problem for O'Toole if it's, if it's limited to a writing or two. But if it's a, a more broad, uh, you know, more uh, widespread and, and coordinated, then then it is a problem. But I do remember Chuck Cadman, if you remember back to yeah. Chuck Cadman. Who was, uh, who was also ousted by instant members. And uh, I remember Don Plett, who was the party president at the time, said, yeah, they, he's, he's like a rock star in that writing. But it was a pity when they came up to ask for autographs that he didn't get them to sign memberships. Mm-hmm. And then, mm-hmm. if you remember, Cadman had the last laugh when he, in uh, the late Chuck Cadman, yeah. he, he, uh, yeah. he didn't vote with the Conservatives on uh, bringing down the government in 2005. So, so these things tend to come back to bite parties, I think.
0: All right, we'll watch for uh, what happens next. Thank you all for your time. Appreciate it. We'll talk again.
8: Thanks.
6: It's-
0: Thank you. And that's all the time we have for this edition of Primetime Politics. I'm Peter Van Dusen. Thanks for watching. From all of us here at CPAC, take care.